So if you would open open your Bibles to John 7, find mine this morning. Um, so dad uh, asked me to go ahead and, and press on with our study of John this morning. And and so I'm, I'm happy to do that. I had these notes ready last Sunday, but we didn't get to it. Um, and that's fine. Lord knows. Right. So today we're we're in. Um, actually, we're starting right at the very last verse of, of John's of John 7, John 753, which is considered part of this this whole text. They really should have started uh, chapter eight with <laughs> with verse 53. And you'll see why here in a minute. <clears throat> I just want to um, take a moment to set the background for this. Um, those who've been in the class remember that John 7 through um, John 7 through 10 uh, form a major section in John where uh, we've we've seen about two and a half years of Jesus's ministry already. He's, John has sort of in his gospel has fast forwarded through much of that. A lot of it is covered in the other three gospels, so he doesn't repeat that. It's the illustration I keep using is it's like you're watching movie and John is in the room. He's got the remote. In fact, I have a remote here, you know, and, and it's like he's, he's fast forwarding parts of it. He'll slow down. You'll see a little clip and then he'll fast forward again. Right. <clears throat> well, the, ch the chapters um, before this have been like that. And so um, it's easy to forget that this is near uh, chapter seven really is sort of the beginning of the sunset of his public ministry. Okay. And, uh, and you'll see that particularly when we get into chapter um, 11 and 12, you'll really, we really begin to see the shadow of the cross um, looming across the pages. Having said that, these four chapters hap happen against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we spent a lot of time looking at. That is on our calendar, it's uh, late September, early October timeframe. And, um, and so chapter seven that we've just finished up is, uh, again, like one of those, those shows where you have uh, audience participation, like, like um, America's Most Talented or something like that. Um, so you have, you'll have cameras focused on the stage, uh, or America's Got Talent, is it, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you'll have uh, cameras on the stage, but you have cameras focused on the audience, and, and there's a lot of the editors are, are showing audience reaction uh, with what's happening on stage. And chapter seven is very much like that. Um, it's not a big, long, um, it, it's, it's not uh, like chapters 13 through 16, which is Jesus primarily teaching his disciples. And you, we hear a lot of, some of the reaction from the disciples, but mostly it's Jesus talking. Chapter seven, Jesus does talk a little bit, but there's a lot of crowd reaction. And we saw that um, in the last, uh, prior notes, we saw the division over Jesus, and that's really what John is showing us in chapter 7, is that by this point, remember it's late in his ministry, he's only a three-year, uh, around a three-year ministry, and so two and a half years into it, um, there's a lot of mixed reactions, and uh, people are, there are those who have, have been basically set against him from pretty much the beginning, uh, those are called the Jews, um, the Pharisees. We're going to see them show up here in, in, in our text in John 8, about the, the woman caught in adultery. Um, but then you have his disciples, right? These are people who 
uh, as I like to say, are, are have signed up for Camp Jesus, right? And um, in chapter six, we saw many of them get offended and leave, uh, right? But there's still quite a few that follow him. But then there's a lot of people in the middle who are sort of ambivalent, or maybe they're still thinking it through and processing it. And, and that is sort of typified right there at the end of chapter 11, that, that group of people, uh, I would put in verse 50 of chapter 11, Nicodemus, it says, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Nicodemus seems to be in that category. He is definitely a peer of the Sanhedrin. He's also a member of the Pharisees as well. So a lot of his, his, um, his peers in these uh, influential groups are against Jesus, very much so. But he is, he's still exploring that and he's still thinking it through. And by the end of the book, we'll see him show up one more time. By the end of the book, he makes a very bold um, move actually to, to really put his career and his livelihood on the line by um, working with Joseph Arimathea to get the body of Jesus. It doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but it really is. In a time when the other disciples, even many of the 12, were hiding in the shadows, this man steps up, and, and that really says a lot. But anyway, by this point, Nicodemus is sort of typical of that middle group. And you remember that uh, right there at the end of chapter 11, um, the guards who were sent, the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus and Nicodemus both were attacked by Jesus's enemies. Um, <clears throat> and, and they used what we call an ad hominem attack, right? In other words, rather than, than, than offering proof that Jesus isn't the Messiah, they instead attack the character of both the, well, actually three, three types of people. They, the guards are lumped in with the crowd, right? Who don't know anything. Uh, they're insulted by the religious leaders. And then the religious leaders also throw um, Nicodemus under the bus there in verse 52, they say, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Which, you know, again to us, that doesn't sound like an insult, <laughs> but it is. Um, <clears throat> this was considered sort of the blue collar community. There was a lot of Gentiles in that area. You know, there was some overlap with Samaria too. So you had, um, there's just a, a, a mix of people up there um, and of course, Jesus is from Galilee, and many of his disciples are as well. Uh, so they were what we'd call blue-collar uh, backwater people in the eyes of these Jewish leaders. And so they, they basically demean Nicodemus by saying that and saying, well, are you, are you also from the wrong side of the tracks? Uh, you like this crowd and, and who doesn't know the scriptures, right? Well, of course, that's ridiculous. Uh, Nicodemus knew the scriptures every bit as good, if not better than most of them, but that's okay. They're not out for proof, which by the way, is a mark of, of unbelief, right? Um, God is fine with us with honest questions, you know, um, but when questions are disguised at, when, when objections are disguised as questions, right? You're not really looking for an answer. You're just interested in putting up defenses and, and keeping at arm's length uh, truths or things that you don't like or don't agree with, and that's not that's not honesty, right? At least uh, Nicodemus is being intellectually honest, and in his 
his reply to them. But they come back with an insult, which is just a, a way of putting him down and putting him off. Um, and then they say, look, search and look for no prophet has risen of Galilee. And that's not true. And that's on the end of your, your notes. Um, if you don't have a copy of the prior notes, <clears throat> let me know. I'd be happy to share them with you. There were two prophets that, that are from Galilee, as far as we know. Uh, one, one we know for sure of Jonah. Uh, the other one is, is a strong possibility, Nahum. And uh, remember at the Bible study uh, last Sunday evening, uh, Larry showed us a video from the town of Capernaum as it is today, which was really interesting because uh, Capernaum means the town of Nahum. And so it's uh, scholars aren't sure if he was born there or if that was just this maybe the center of his ministry. But he is uh, a strong possibility of a second prophet that did come from Galilee. So their statement here really <laughs> is funny because um, while they're insulting everybody else, they end up sticking their foot in their own mouths uh, to show their own ignorance of scriptures. Uh, when they say no prophet has arisen out of Galilee, that's not true. So, okay, um, that's kind of where we've been. And um, so let's let's go ahead and and um, and get into. Let's have uh, somebody uh, read this section, if you would, uh, seven fifty three through eight eleven, and then we'll we'll get into our notes here. We'll talk about the controversy surrounding the passage, and then we'll we'll dig into the passage. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thank you. Okay, how many of you um, have a little marker around this section in your Bible? I do. Did, yeah, I uh, do. Is that Larry? Yes, it is. Yeah. What does it say? It says, the most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. Right. Okay, yeah, most most uh, modern translations will have some kind of marker there, a small footnote. Some have little, I've seen some that have like a little line, a bracket, uh, brackets around this section. 
Um, <clears throat> so I want to, uh, you see here on the notes, I want to talk about that just for a second. Um, this passage, uh, let's read that together. So the controversy over this passage, this section in John is marked in most English translations to indicate doubt about its inclusion in the original writing of John's gospel. There are a number of compelling reasons for this. The earliest, most reliable manuscripts do not have this section anywhere in the book. Other manuscripts copied later include marks that indicate doubt as to its inclusion. Uh, so not just in our English Bibles, but also some of the, uh, some of the um, scrolls or the copies of scripture that were uh, of this gospel that were uh, made later also indicate that. Some of these other manuscripts have placed it in other locations, such as after 736, 744, and 2125, which would be at the very near the very end of the gospel. In one case, it is placed after Luke 2138. So in other words, some of these uh, scripts that came a little bit later um, have this story of the woman caught in adultery sort of floating around in different places, okay? Uh, and even, even in one case, uh, it's, it's found in Luke, Luke's gospel. Um, its vocabulary, its style, and its flow do not fit with the rest of the gospel, okay? Um, in terms of, of John's writing style. This evidence of late edition is also true of Mark 16, uh, 9 through 20, which is not a, it's not a parallel passage to this one. It's a different passage, but uh, it has the same, the same history to it, okay? So it's such that it, it appears to have been added later, uh, meaning it is not without precedent, okay? So we have two, two examples of this in the Gospels. Another, um, another interesting point here in the controversy over it, the last bullet there, is no early Greek uh, church father comments on it until the 12th century, okay, which is pretty late in church history. So um, with all that being said, many scholars and commentators believe, um, so here's, if you will, to imagine two attorneys, right? We've heard the defense now, or now we've heard the prosecution, now here's the defense, right, if, if you will. Um, number one, it bears the hallmarks of historical veracity. There's nothing here that, you know, doesn't sound like it's really, really out of place or, or written by something that, by someone that is um, inserting something very out of place historically, okay? Um, it is likely to have been a piece of oral tradition that circulated in early, in parts of the early Western church. So it's, it's uh, it may have actually come from, from John himself. Uh, or the apostles as a story that they told maybe in a sermon or something like that uh, in relaying an event that that uh, that happened that Jesus um, that that happened in Jesus life okay so it's it's likely uh, a piece of oral tradition the third thing here is it does not lay out any new doctrine nor does it contradict any doctrines found in the rest of scripture okay so the story itself doesn't uh, present any doctrinal problems to us. It doesn't say, it doesn't give us something that's like completely different or, or out of the context of the rest of the flow of scripture. 
to me, that point particularly is is um, the most compelling reason I think that uh, for that, that I think that it deserves our study and our and, and looking at. Um, and so I put down here why we will, uh, if we want to scroll up on the screen there, uh, Aaron. Thank you. So keep keep going, so we can see that whole section there. Can you scroll up? There we go. Okay, so despite the doubts of its veracity, um, it is possible to be wrong. So we study it in its context here and draw what we may from it, trusting the Holy Spirit has it here for a reason. God is not the victim of historical circumstances that have put it in our Bible. So it is best to study in the light of the rest of scripture as we would any text while understanding that it is not to be treated as a proof text for any new doctrines, okay? Which it, it doesn't present that. So it doesn't present any, any problems, um, interpretive problems or anything of that nature. And I, you know, it's, however it, it ended up here, it's here. <laughs> and, you know, my personal take is after having looked at this and thought about it um, is that, you know, I believe God is sovereign, <laughs> certainly over everything, but particularly the scriptures, right? And in putting it here at this place, uh, it is his direction. It's not here by accident. He isn't trying to scramble around to figure out um, how we can get it out or something, but it is here. And, uh, but I do want us to be aware of the fact and so if you, if you read, so if you read the tail end of chapter 11 there, verse 52, and then you skip that and read with chapter, uh, go to chapter 8, verse 12, it, you can kind of see how chapter 8 kind of continues with this, this whole um, interaction that Jesus is having at, this, at the Feast of Tabernacles with the people First of all, in the temples, he's teaching. Remember, he came about the midway point of the feast. It's about uh, seven days plus one more, Sabbath at the end, right? High Sabbath. And so he came to the midpoint about three, maybe three days into the feast, and he shows at the temple he's teaching. And so the rest of chapter eight after this section kind of picks up with that. And I think it, what it does is it goes back to what chapter seven was showing us with a little bit of Jesus teaching, but mostly crowd reaction. And it kind of goes back then to revisit what the confrontation that he ends up having in the temple there, evidently, with the Jewish leaders, okay? Um, but nevertheless, this if this did happen right on the tail end of it, it does, it does fit pretty well, okay? So uh, there in verse uh, 53, so we're now in the outline here, and I've got these first three points are called setting the stage, setting the trap, and setting the tension, okay? And uh, <clears throat> so with setting the stage, uh, 753 says, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> so it's, it's again, it's, it's not clear that, that this fits in with what's been happening up to this point, but it's, that's okay. Um, Jesus, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
And this fits exactly with everything that he, that his normal pattern would be. When he would come to a feast like this, as I, I mentioned before to you, we're going to see this when we get to chapter 11, and we'll look at uh, the raising of Lazarus. There's some interesting background there. It seems to be that when Jesus, remember that his home base was up in Galilee, right? Particularly Capernaum. And when he would but when he would come down routinely to Judea, uh, particularly to Jerusalem, to for the feasts like this one, he had to have a place to stay, right? And so it seems likely that he spent um, maybe not always, but he did have a place to stay with Mary and Martha in their house. It was only two miles away in Bethany. Okay, it seems that Martha was a very wealthy woman. And, and had, a, had a large house and plenty of accommodation, not only for Jesus, but for those that his disciples probably were traveling with him. And so, but it was not uncommon for him the next day to go early in the morning. Jesus did get up early a lot. <laughs> we have a number of places where he recorded the gospel where he got up earlier. Sometimes he would, uh, especially like when he's, uh, I think we just got through studying in Mark about the, the choice of the disciples, right, or getting ready to, and it says he got up early. Actually, he stayed up all night praying, right? So sometimes he'd get up early to pray or he'd get up uh, or he'd stay up all night in, in prayer uh, on the eve of very important decisions like choosing of the 12. So here it's not at all uh, unlike him to show up early in the temple. What is also interesting here is all the people came to him and he sat down and talked to them. So if you know the, the, the teaching position of the rabbis, right, that's what they would do. Today, when you go to church, um, I'm sitting down right now because <laughs> um, it'd be kind of weird just standing up here. But um, when we go to church today, usually you have somebody standing behind a pulpit, right? And, and they read the scriptures from the pulpit or they teach standing up. In the synagogues, yeah, in fact, this is still true in, in many of the synagogues. Uh, there was one in California we went to visit right down from Grace Church that I remember vividly. And they did have a pulpit uh, there, but their their podium was for putting the scrolls on and, and reading the scriptures. And I remember this particular uh, synagogue. They actually have a little they had a little pointer. It looked like a little like a wand, you know, from Harry Potter, maybe about eighteen inches long, something like that. And it was made out of brass, and it had a it had a finger a, a hand with a finger pointed out, and it's what it's what whoever is reading standing up would use that as their place pointer as they were reading the scriptures. But when it came to teach, they would sit down. And so you'll see that in the gospels, that, like in Luke, for example, where it talks about where Jesus found the place in the scroll where it was written in Isaiah, um, you know, that, that, um, that it has come to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth. And then he says today, this is fulfilled in your hearing, right? It says that he, he gave it back to the attendant and then sat down and then started teaching, right? So the posture for a rabbi was to, was to, to sit down like this. And what's interesting, again, is all the people gather around him. So you've got this, you've got this setting of the stage, right? All right, point number two is the setting of the trap. Um, then this is uh, verses three through 6a. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, 
they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Again, all of this fits with the rest of the Gospels, right? With what we know about these people. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> first of all, they do this to try to trap him, right? And there's many other cases in the Gospels where they try to do that, like with, the, with paying the tax. Is it lawful to pay tax or not, right? Another case is, is um, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus turns that around to trap them by saying, John's baptism, was it from God or from men, right? And he, he traps them. Um, and he's, he's often doing that. They're trying to trap him, but he turns it around and ends up trapping them. And that's what happens here, okay? So here they're setting the trap. And uh, what, what do you notice that's glaringly missing? A man. <laughs> mm -hmm. Takes two to tango. Yeah, yeah. So we we're talking about this earlier this morning. Um, how much you want to discuss? That's how they knew. What's that? So probably one of the Pharisees. That's how they knew she was caught in adultery. She was with a Pharisee. Probably been doing it for a while too. Yeah, maybe so. We don't know how how all of this went down. Uh, some of the teachers or commentators that I listened to or read. Uh, and I kind of suspected this, too, as I was thinking about it, that uh, likely they uh, enjoyed watching this for a little bit. You know, you're, you're living in a time in which you're not, um, there's not a lot of, you know, porn or whatever that's available like it is today. And so I'm not trying to be gross, but I'm just thinking that these guys may have, have enjoyed that, you know, um, set this thing up. And that, that could very well be behind Jesus's um, accusation, let the one who is without sin, right? Because he had already taught Sermon on the Mount that, that uh, adultery is not just a physical act, that it is also that God is after the heart, right? If you look at a, a woman or you watch a situation like a pornographic film or something and you, to lust like that, it's the same in God's eyes as having committed the actual act. Especially if, like, she's not aware of them watching. You know what I mean? That, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. I mean, I've, I've, our imagination would go wild, you know, thinking about making this as a movie. Um, maybe it's one of their guys, like you say, one of their buddies who is doing this, or maybe that one of the guys agreed to, to, to entrap her. She was known for doing this, um, and they can, so they can catch her in the act. But the thing that is missing, like you said, Brianna, is where's the man, mm -hmm. right? Um, you don't commit adultery by yourself <laughs> unless it's in your, in your thoughts, like we said a second ago. But here, she was caught in the act, they say, which means she had a partner. And, um, of course, a lot of commentators have noticed that. And the law of Moses, you go back and read that, it's very clear that both of them, not just the woman, are to be uh, are to be stoned. Really, actually, I think uh, executed. I think I don't think stoning came was explicitly given. It may be, 
in the text there. But the point is that the law does say it's not just the woman who should be punished. So already we're starting off on a bad foot, right? But the focus of this text is not that. That's not what, what we're being focused on here. What verse 6 focuses us on is the fact that they're trying to trap Jesus, which is interesting. If they knew that as the teachers of the law or as the leaders in the land sitting in Moses' seat, that this was their responsibility to, to, um, to execute, why are they bringing this to Jesus? Right? Well, the real sin here is not just that they did this and the hypocrisy, but that they are, rather than seeking an honest answer from the Son of God, like the woman at the well did, right? She, as soon as she realized she hadn't yet put it together that he is the Messiah, but she even says, well, I perceive you're a prophet. Then she has this honest question, you know, the most pressing question that she has for somebody who can resolve this controversy. They don't come with that attitude. This They, they put on a show here. Look at what they say to him, verse 4, teacher, right? Rabbi. Yes, these are, uh, we talked the other day, last Sunday, uh, Eric, Miss Erica had um, National Compliment Day, and I mentioned this saying that I've, I've said to the girls many times, you know, compliments are free, but yeah, that's right. Good. Flattery comes with a price, right? But they're not, flat, they're, they're, this isn't a compliment. This is flattery. This is you know, um, uh, trying to appear honest and trying to appear respectful when, in fact, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to put him on the, on, on the, as Dad says, on the horns of a dilemma. Notice in the tail end of chapter, of, sorry, of verse three there, it says they set her in the midst. So you, you, got the, you got this scenario there. Jesus has come early in the morning to the temple He's sitting down teaching the people. They're engrossed in what he has to say, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, here comes this crowd and, and they're th this this rabble of, of religious leaders, and they're dragging this poor woman along. If you uh, have a if you have a chance, I suggest you um, go on to Grace to You website or or the app and and listen to John to John's message on this. He, it's very he does a really good job. Uh, of, of talking about it and, 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 and putting this together, you know, who knows whether she even had time to, to get dressed or was maybe struggling as they're pulling her along to, to keep a loose bed sheet or something around her. Uh, but she's, this is very shameful for her, right? So she's being dragged out in public, not just in front of Jesus, but in front of all of these people as well, who undoubtedly knew her, uh, you know, in, in maybe some friends or, or maybe even relatives there, um, and so they, they throw her, as it were, in the midst of this. Maybe she's laying on the ground like in um, the portrayal of the Passion, you know, um, kind of there ashamed, barely wrapped. And they say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Okay, so again, condensed form of, of the larger accusation. Uh, they make it clear in no uncertain terms, there's no ambiguity here. It, this isn't hearsay. This isn't, um, you know, well, we think she's done this before and so we're dragging her. No, she was caught in the act. Now Moses in the law 
commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? <laughs> do you hear the trap there, right? So what is the trap? She is, um, if, if Jesus says, well, it's okay, let's let, let's let her go, then he can be seen as violating uh, the, the law of God, right? But if he, says, if he sides with, with the law, uh, then that flies in the face of, of grace and possibly and, and what he's been, been teaching in that regard. And so uh, they, they throw her down there and they rightly say that in the law she is to be executed. Uh, but what do you say? Verse six, of course, like I said earlier, they, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They want to discredit him. Want the, the crowd who is there, uh, all the eyes, as it were, watching him, watching for his response, uh, to see him shamed and to be embarrassed um, and his, his credibility um, ruined. So that's the trap. Um, the third point here is setting the tension, and that's uh, verses 6b through 7a. It's a short section. Um, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he straightened up, right? So they continued asking him, and that's, that's where 7a stops. A lot of people <laughs> speculate about what Jesus was writing. Uh, some I've heard I've heard speculation like he was writing the sins, began to write the sins out of the the people, the religious leaders who had brought her. Okay. Some people uh, say he wasn't writing anything; that he was tracing the stones. Perhaps um, the fact is, it doesn't say. I can tell you that um, it wasn't uncommon for rabbis. Uh, they didn't have a whiteboard or chalkboard like we do, right? Or a visual display, something put up on a, a pro projected on a screen or something. So, but they would, especially when it was a smaller, intimate crowd, they would sometimes write in the dirt, and and uh, you know just to have, just to be able to write and then be able to wipe it out and like a chalkboard kind of thing. Perhaps that's what's happening here, although that's uh, that's problematic too because he's not out in the field somewhere or on the sitting on a beach, right? He's in the temple, and so there's not a lot of sand. This would be a paved courtyard there, all right. The thing that's when you when you start getting sidelined with something like this, it can distract you from the main point of the passage. Okay, so the passage doesn't tell us what he's writing because it doesn't matter. Right. What's what the passage is trying to tell us is the tension that's being built here. Right. Why doesn't Jesus respond to them right away? And the, the sense of verse seven is that they continue to ask him. Right. They keep pressing the point. Well, first of all, what they did was very rude. Right. To, to Jesus and to the rest of the, the crowd there. They're not coming as honest uh, disciples, they're not they're not coming with honest questions. They want to. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the hypocrisy of where's the man. They don't care about any of those things. They're just trying to trap Jesus, trying to discredit him right in front of everybody. 
okay? So I think there's a sense in which Jesus is silently rebuking them for that. By saying, you know, you may come in here with a big rush, but that doesn't obligate me to just respond right away to this, right? I hear that often when he's like getting judgment on me and he doesn't say anything, like with Herod. That's his judgment when God doesn't speak. Boy, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, in the the rest of the verses, um, I kind of think that maybe Jesus did not. It's it's complicated. Um, if you read the rest of them in Deuteronomy 22 at the end, there are other um, stipulations as to who dies, who doesn't die. Um, the very last one in the end of um, Deuteronomy 22 says that if the man meets a virgin, and now this doesn't say in John at all if the woman is a virgin. Now, <clears throat> if he meets her, and um, and it says that if he lays with her, then then he does neither one of them gets killed, but they have to, but he has to go ahead and pay. 50 shekels of silver to the girl's dad and he makes her his wife you know so there's that part other than all the other things about being in the city or being in the country or raping her or whatever happened um there were other questions to be asked um before you know before they they just arbitrarily take the woman and stone her so you know there there were other things there. So for Jesus to actually not all of a sudden he it wouldn't have been right really for him to have just said, oh yeah okay that's what happened that's what happened and then just arbitrarily kill her and um, there were just other stipulations in it that nobody knew. I guess Jesus already did know, but does that make sense what I said? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I think you're 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 right. Um, and that's a that's another big uh, uh, point here too. Is that there isn't this isn't the time and the place to bring that up anyway, right? There 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 were courts. They had a system. Um, they had, you know, they had the Sanhedrin. Now, of course, not the Sanhedrin wouldn't be called for every single violation or something like that. But they did have the means of dealing with these things established like just like we do today right you have we have a court system and we have a way of handling everything from you know parking tickets up to murder right um, and they did too so you're you're absolutely right uh, you can't just right off the face of it say okay well this is what ought to happen is that fair, Erica? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying because that's that's what those verses said at the end of Deuteronomy. The verses said that that there were different different stipulations as to whether it happened in the city, whether it happened in the country, um, uh, whether she was betrothed, whether she wasn't betrothed. You know, I mean, so there were other stipulations there uh, as to why or if the man attacked her. Or if it was consensual. I mean, it was in Deuteronomy. It it gives the it gives the punishment for whatever the incident was. 
So, yes, you're right. They were just setting a trap for Jesus by just saying, hey, here's this woman. This is what she did. Threw her in the middle of the crowd, you know, and there weren't the, there weren't the details that were necessary for anyone to make a good decision at the moment. So that's all. I was just. I just thought that was interesting because I always wondered, well, why didn't Jesus just say something? You know, why didn't he say, hey, I know exactly what happened? You know, because of course he did know what happened. But he didn't. There just was not all the facts laid out for everyone around. It was just a, a rude um, thing, and he knew exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. So, anyway, I'm sorry. Just put it in and every <laughs> knuckle that. Oh, absolutely. That's very good. Yeah. Anybody else? Any thoughts of anything up to this point? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they they themselves are are supposed to be sitting in the seat of Moses, right? The other gospels talk about that. Um, that they they have the authority as it were, to, to execute, because they put themselves there, right? They're always holding themselves up as the, as the ones who are here to hold the nation true to, to the one true God and to, uh, to the law. Um, so it's, there's just a lot of things that are wrong <laughs> about this whole thing. One of the yeah. things you were talking about why they didn't bring the man might be because he might be a lot more difficult to corner and to stop. He could get out and run and not be embarrassed as much as the wife or the woman. That could be. Right. They just keep breaking into houses until they found one. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah, Brianna, did you hear that? Brianna brings up a good point. What'd you say? I just said, like, how did they know where to find them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> this is a stage to thing, isn't it? Yeah. He may have been in on it, actually. Oh, he, he definitely was. Probably one of them. Yeah. Yeah, it seems quite likely that, 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 that yeah. that's the case, that there was a conspiracy afoot yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. really. Right. Yeah, very good points. Very good points. Um, thank you for that. Okay, so, so the, the trap is set, but now the tension, right? And that's the thing that I really find to be fascinating. Um, the text doesn't tell us what Jesus was writing, what he was doing. Was he tracing the stones? Was he actually writing there in the courtyard uh, to, to communicate to, you know, like a chalkboard kind of thing? We don't know. Um, the thing that matters here is the tension, right? So, again, see Jesus sitting there, the courtyards, a lot of people around. He's, it's, it's well into his ministry. He's very well known. He's taught many, probably many of the people gathered there were healed by him or know somebody who was okay so he's very well known and he's very respected and the, the religious leaders interrupt this whole thing they embarrass this woman their hypocrisy is on display uh and, and it's just it just like cuts against the grain of everything that's going on right and 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 i think there's several things going on here not only is jesus setting the tension but he's also showing that he's in charge right he's not just here to just snap off at the whim of what they have, you know, to play along with them in their in their game. He's taking a moment to 
calm his nerves so he doesn't shoot off and get mad at them? Could be, could be some self-control. Could also be waiting for them to, for them to calm down too. You know, they're shouting and carrying on and there's a big ruckus about this thing. And of course it would, it would definitely interrupt and all the eyes would be focused on, on them and on this woman there and, uh, and so forth. Um, and so, but, but this tension really puts the focus back on Jesus, right? As, as the tension builds, right? That silence and they're continuing to press and ask the questions. The focus of the attention comes back to Jesus especially in the rest of verse seven there, this is point number four, reversing the trap, right? Is he raised himself up. I, I love that, you know, he's, he's down. Maybe he was, you know, seated on a stone or something in writing. We don't know. Um, but now this persistent asking and so on, it's, it just builds that tension, builds the tension. And then he stands up. And all the eyes are focused on him, right? Everybody's ready. What is he going to say? Here's this guy that has, remember, it's late in his ministry again, right? So a lot of people knew that he had put them in their place many times. How's he going to handle this? And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw throw a stone at her first. He'll be the first to throw the stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Went back to, to, to doing what he was doing. That's yes. interesting about that. Maybe this is when you're telling a story or you're, you know, like in theater and stuff and in character arcs, it's you want to have contrast to show a difference between, you know, your protagonist and your antagonist. Um, something interesting about that is like the levels, right? the high level and high energy of the Pharisees versus Jesus on the ground, low level energy. Um, but something that that does for the audience, the people watching this is it shows just how ridiculous the Pharisees look. They just, you know, that, you know, like in a movie when you have a bad guy, just shoot and kill some innocent person that kind of helps show you, Oh, this is, this is a bad person. Like their argument is not valid. Mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, rather than Jesus, like, you know, facing them and them arguing back and forth, just them standing there, hovering around him, yelling and shooting off at the mouth and stuff, really, to the audience, makes their their argument look wrong, you know. So if you were watching this in a show, you know, on stage in the show, that would show the audience who the good guy is versus the bad guy, you know. It's... Part of the storytelling so it's interesting there's that level of contrast and that could be part of what jesus is trying to show is just visually show them the contrast that's a great point that's a great point because um who is it that's embarrassed now right <laughs> like you know they look really foolish to people and then when he stands that's like all eyes are on him now because he has he's taken the stage center stage you know he's raising up Oh, he has something to say now. And then when he says it, like that's a mic drop moment, goes back down to what he was doing, <laughs> and they look foolish and they know it. He just made them look stupid. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a great point. Very good. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly that's what we we say the mic mic drop, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly right. Well, and he's Let done that. Me. He's made that that whole thing by simply his physical demeanor and what he said. He stood up, he sat down, and and uh, the eyes kept moving back and forth. He was just he he was in charge of that. That's right. Let me read the New Living Translation. Go ahead. Listen, listen to this. It says, they kept demanding, that's verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has sinned throw the first stone. That almost uh, sounds like that he's, he'll give an answer if there is a sinless person there. Like he knew what to do. He knew what the answer was to their question. But he says, all right, but let the, let the one uh, who has never sinned throw the first stone. I thought that was very interesting, that all right, but. Yeah, that probably goes back to the Old Testament. I forget in Deuteronomy 14 or 13 or whatever, where they twice the scriptures say when a man is to be stoned, the first stones are to come from the hand of the witnesses um, of, of a person that's being stoned to death. And uh, so that kind of puts that into their hands as well. Those that have witnessed that adultery affair should be the ones that throw the first stone. Which, which adds... <laughs> which adds impact to it if they did in fact witness this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Doing it for a little bit before yeah. they jumped in. Hey, Pete. Yeah. Uh, what I find interesting is, is, you know, he was already in a, in a, in a squatting or seating position. And then after he straightened up and stood up, I, I visualized him standing up and that, that shows authority, and that shows that he demands respect. And then he then he quoted that, if any one of you is without sin, let him first throw stone at her. And then he stooped back down. And I know, I think what I, and I'm not jumping on your getting ahead of you, but, you know, in verse 9, we know they, they those ones that they feel guilty. And as, as Brianna said, the limelight's on them. And so they're the ones now that feel humiliated. humiliated. So as, when he sat down, I think that was him giving them the escape route. Yeah. You know, they were able to leave. Because I, I picture him, you know, it said uh, he began to sit down and wrote on the ground again. So his eyes were not on them. He was focused on the ground. So with him standing up, that, that showed authority. When he stood down, it was like, I know you guys are the sinners, and it, this is your this is your exit. So time to leave. I don't know if it's just a problem. Yeah, I didn't hear what you said. Yeah. Like they walked away, they humiliated the crap out of her, and then Jesus just turns around and totally humiliates them. Right. That's you right. Know, turns it on them. Basically, puts a mirror to them. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good. Good, good points. Um, well, Rick, since you brought up nine, let's let's go. Let's read that. Then those who heard it, being convicted in their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, which is 
by the way, why some commentators think maybe he was writing their sins in that order. We don't know. It just says it that way. Probably because the oldest have the most to repent of, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and sometimes, sometimes age too, you know, you, you're young and spry and you, and you, you know, you feel full of yourself. And as you get a little older, you realize you have frailings and, and fallings uh, too. And it is, should be anyway, some humility that comes with age. Um, and then uh, they went one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And I don't think it means that it was only the two of them, right? The whole crowd went away. It just means of, of the centerpiece of, of all of this, this group that's dragging her there and Jesus. And then as Brianna said, it's just, it really is just like an audience there in the stage. And they're watching this whole thing, this whole theater unfold on the stage, right? And so if you think of it in that sense, that back on the stage then after these guys leave, it's just Jesus and this woman. And the, the power and the impact of what he says to her resonates not just with her but with the whole audience with everybody who is there Amen. Right? and and so um they, they're convicted about this and not, not one of them <laughs> stoned him it's, it, one of the commentators where i think it may have been john that said this they they likely came maybe with some stones in their hands uh they were witnesses of this there seems to be very little as we said earlier uh uh if what you say that is is well what you said is true about the witnesses uh, to the crime where they're supposed to be the first to throw the stones, uh, then that lends weight to the fact that they probably did see this and watch it for a while. And, and there's, there's a whole bunch of sin with that as well, right? That they didn't try to mercifully intervene. Yeah, there is. Yes, there is. To, say, to say, wait, 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 you guys, you know, you're both married to other people. You shouldn't be doing this, right? Or what, none of that. They're, they watch it for a while, indulge in it, and then they barge in and, and see an opportunity to, to trap Jesus. Okay, so uh, Jesus was left alone with the woman. Okay, so now what is he going to say to her? Right? There's no denying that this is wrong, that this is sin. Um, right, right. And I just, I love this. All of this wraps up, and, and I know we're going long here, but let's, let's see if we can finish. This is the last one. Last point here, because it's so beautiful, demonstrating that the grace and truth of God the Son. Um, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, you know the words, right? Neither do I condemn you. No more. Um, you can just imagine the look of shock. The the shame is beginning to fade as as well. You know, of course, uh, there'd be terror on her part as well, not just shame um, <clears throat> for what is coming, what she is due. But then to hear him say this to her is a shock. I don't doubt that this never left her ears. It was always ringing in her ears. Anytime from this point on afterwards that she was tempted uh, to sin in this way or other ways, the grace that he shows her here uh, is more powerful in many respects than the punishment would ever have been, right? Or the threat of punishment. 
Uh, but the thing I wanted to leave us with is there on your notes, um, if we reference, um, if you would just flip back to John 1, 14, and we'll, we'll end with this. John in his prologue, you know, to the gospel is setting up this one, the stage for, for this one. And he says in verse 14, this one that he calls the word here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And this story, you know, whether or not it actually was in the original text, um, that's, like I said, that's the, the debated. But there's no doubt that it's very much an illustration of, of exactly that. Here is the truth and the grace in one reply, right? Neither do I condemn you. That's the grace. But go and sin no more. That's the truth. He's not denying. He's not saying, oh, it's okay. It's no problem. You can, you know, you can commit adultery. That's fine. No. It is a sin. She knows it. He knows it. Everybody knows it. But there's grace there. And the reason he can do, he's the only one who's without sin. He's the Amen. only one that's right. that can cast yeah. the stone at her, right? Yes, yeah, right. But the reason he can extend this grace to her is because he knows he will take her place. Yeah. He will take her place. And he will be the one, like, like the lamb on the mountain, substitute for, for Isaac, the lamb of God that was supplied for the sins of the world, including hers. So... Bible doesn't say what happened to her after this. Uh, it's possible that that she became a believer, very very likely, maybe years later. Um, we don't know, but that same offer is there, right? He is full of grace and truth, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, as Christians, we can tend to be one or the other. You know, we tend, I think, just in a sinful nature, we tend to want to go to extremes. You know, we're all we're all truth, and we're very little grace, or we're all grace and very little truth. But Jesus is the perfect blend of both as the word of God. And um, so it's a good, good lesson. Bye, Dory. <laughs> yeah, she's got to go to work. <laughs> All right. You know, also, yeah. also, you, also, you mentioned the fact that uh, the crowd was probably there and it does say that in the New Living Translation it reads beginning from the oldest and until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman what a demonstration to the crowd as well of his grace yeah. and his forgiveness it wasn't only to the woman, but it was it was a demonstration to the crowd. Those people looking on, I'm sure, were looking to see what Jesus was going to do. You know? It's it's a new day, isn't it? Yeah. It's a new day. The the old the old law, the condemnation, the the religious self self righteous religious system of these Pharisees is crumbling. Uh, and falling apart. And the people knew it anyway. They knew these people, you know, they had to sigh under the burdens, right? Jesus says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What's he talking about? He's talking about this burden, this burden that they created. They'd taken the law of God and added and added and added and added to it so much that people felt that were groaning under the weight of this legalistic man-made system. 
And here's, it's a new day. It's a day of grace. Uh, not, not dismissing sin, but paying for it in the substitutionary death of the one who stands right there. And it's good to know that that same one is at the right hand of God as our advocate. Amen. Today. Amen. We have Satan come and accuse us. And that's, I like to say, it's the only time he tells the truth because <laughs> he doesn't have to lie about, about our, our deserving of judgment under the wrath of God. But, but we have an advocate with the father who intercedes for us just like this. You Don't mentioned you something I had not thought about. And that is, it's possible that she became a believer if that's the case, that may explain why this account is not covered and it's kind of shady. It was, it was delayed before it was put into the canon, maybe. I don't know that's the case. I'm just thinking out, out of respect for her, because here's a woman that everybody would know about her. Her story is being told in the text. I don't know that's the case, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she was a believer, did become a believer, if the Lord used this. And, and this just really kind of touches my heart that our God is is that merciful and that gracious and that good and that loving to all of us we're all every single one of us have done things like that every one of us and and uh, we are just so guilty before the Lord and he is so merciful and so gracious to us and we have an eternal debt that uh, we cannot ever really repay but um, he's there and he offers it to us Heavenly Father, uh, again, we thank you for your grace and your truth, uh, which we see perfectly embodied in Jesus. And um, this story definitely shows that in a very, very concise, precise, and powerful way. Um, and it, it, there's a sense in which we're one of the two kinds of sinners here. We're either the ones who are blatantly living lives of, of um open hedonism, perhaps, uh, uh, standing accused before you like this woman, or we're the ones who are uh, trusting in ourselves and our own righteousness and, and refusing to repent of our own hypocrisy. Either way, we need the same Savior Amen. and the same advocate. We thank you so much for your grace. And it's your law. Your law was given for us to see that we are not good enough. We cannot be measured up. And even as we point the fingers, we compare ourselves with ourselves. But when we look at your perfect law, and we see uh, the example, particularly of Jesus and his perfect righteousness, we fall woefully short. We realize we need, we need another way. We thank you for that way, the way of the cross, the way of grace. Uh, and help us to, to uh, see ourselves in this story uh, and like this woman, in need of forgiveness. And I uh, pray your blessing on the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.